From 11FS, I'm Ross Gallagher, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you, as global fintech finance hits record levels in Q1, we recap the latest fintech announcements. We discuss global financial inclusion. And do people really think cryptocurrency is funeral finance? All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Fintech Insider News, brought to you by Microsoft Azure. We are coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate. I'm Ross Gallagher, and today I'm joined by my wonderful 11FS colleague and co-host, Simon Taylor. How are you doing, Simon? I'm really well, sir. Not nearly as jet-lagged as you think I'd be. I had a very good evening and a good night's rest, and I'm back and ready to go. Back to being on the show. I'm enjoying my life. We are so glad to have you back. But enough about us. Let's introduce our guests. Joining us today, we have... Making her fintech insider debut, Carrie Osman, CEO of Cruxy. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, we also have Ali Patterson, editor in chief of fintech finance and friend of the show. Welcome back. Hello, how are you doing? Great to see you. And Amelie Aras from Adastrum Marketing, making a fintech insider debut. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And last but not least, our very own Veronique Constant, program manager here at 11FS. Veronique, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ross. Okay. Let's kick off. So all the stories we talk about today are from our 11FS and FinTech Insider community, fintechinsidernews.com. Check it out for all the latest industry news and sign up to get involved and discuss the stories with everyone on the show and in our community, fintechinsidernews.com. So kicking us off is a story from FinExtra submitted to Fin by Nigel Walsh. And this one talks about global FinTech funding hitting a record $5.4 billion in Q1. So VC-backed FinTech firms raised a record $5.4 billion in the first quarter of 2018, boosted by a dozen mega rounds of at least $100 million. So this is according to the latest figures from CB. Insights, Simon. What are your uh, what are your thoughts on this one? FinTech keeps on marching forward, doesn't it? The interesting thing about this is is it's those mega rounds that seem to have boosted it, right? We're seeing these later stage follow on funding rounds of companies hitting growth stage. For a long time, tech was the the story of you know they're never going to IPO. When are they going to IPO? We haven't really seen that in the fintech space, but it feels like we're getting close to a few starting to drop. I'm interested to see and i haven't drilled down into the figures about whether we're seeing that real input at the bottom end are we seeing the the smaller companies are we seeing the next wave of startups but this is really encouraging for those of us who've been following fintech for some time or might even have a podcast with the name fintech in the title it is quite good to see the development of this market and hopefully it's delivering for customers i mean funding rounds everybody loves a big headline story about the numbers but Feels like people are gaining tractions, gaining customers, and making a difference. And there's there's a lot of unicorns out there. A lot of unicorns. So now apparently twenty six fintech unicorns valued in aggregate seventy seven point six billion dollars. Ali, you must have uh, some thoughts on this. Some pretty impressive numbers, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I see you've highlighted uh, N26 and Atom Bank uh, on there as some of the ones that have got a load of funding. How, how much funding has Atom Bank got now in total? It's 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 a terrific question. It's it's pretty much. I, I mean, BBVA are pretty much just handing over their lunch money pretty much non-stop at this rate. Do they have a fast train line to Durham from Madrid or something? Uh, something like that. I mean, if that doesn't exist, I think it should, right? According to Crunchbase.com, their total funding amount is $369 million, and the overwhelming majority of that has been uh, BBVA. Um, so nearly nearly 80-90% of that, which actually, I think, in the last round, as we said, when they announced that round, pushes them over the threshold in which they have to make an offer to acquire. So I think it, they're in a position in which that is clearly a market entry strategy as a way of doing it, which historically, you know, we have seen this before in previous rounds of financial services. We've seen when Santander came in and acquired the Alliance in Leicester, I think it was, uh, and then from which they put their own brand on it and they were able to you know, kind of really aggressively go into the market with offers. This is an old playbook on new technology um, but we're also seeing the revolutes the monzos the starlings reaching later rounds too and also the other types of fintechs out there your market invoices your transfer wises that are, that are really starting to grow up and it's also not just a european or u.s story anymore it, it's it's become much more of a global story um, although it does note from this article as well that 
Apparently, European fintech deals dipped to a five-quarter low, but funding hit a five-quarter high um, on the later stage side. So Europe's down, but the later stage is up. So this is the shift we're seeing, isn't it? We're moving away from those sort of early round fundings and moving much more towards those sort of much bigger later round fundings. Yeah, I think maturity is interesting to see the market moving in that direction. And as you said, I think when you look at the statistics, it's still Cedars and some of the crap funding platforms that are doing very well, but also Balderton Index hitting kind of top 10 VCs. UK Q1 was actually 44 million, which I thought, given the massive year that we had kind of last year, it will be interesting to see whether that's just reflective of Q1, which always seems to be down, um, or how does that move? And the one thing that I picked out, which I thought was interesting from the CB Insight stuff was that there were a couple of insure techs which kind of made it into notable kind of really serious rounds, which I thought it's good to see given how much that industry needs to be disrupted. Very much agree. I guess my only question is, you know, with what are we seeing, like at least uh, a dozen mega rounds of at least $100 million. Is this indicative of a market that's going from strength to strength? Or are we looking at basically a fintech bubble? Or are we looking at a little bit of both? There's a good variety of companies there, though. I mean, you mentioned the insure tech. There's a good mixture there. There's some on the consumer banking, some on the uh, corporate banking, some just purely from technology to sell to banks. There's a good good spread of companies. And I think that's the thing, is the ones that are going in the big follow-on rounds tend to be either the challenger banks or the fintech players that have been around for a few years. But that was kind of my question, is it appears that in Europe that low-end funding has temporarily dried up, but there are a lot of candidates out there that are a couple of years old, have been around, that are doing pure tech plays as suppliers into banks or that are going after corporate banking or cap tech and insure tech and and these this diversification it's an interesting question will we just see yet another challenger bank or will we see different offerings come to the market yeah and i guess it's a nice segue onto our next story because um i guess speaking of unicorns and fintech funding this story from TechCrunch: digital banking startup revolut raises 250 million at a value, to put it at a valuation of $1.7 billion. I mean, this one for me is just incredible. So, I mean, a, a valuation of $1.7 billion after three years, you know, in comparison transfer-wise, um, a value of £1.6 billion after seven years. We're looking at 2 million customers for Revolut, 250,000 are daily active, and five times increase in valuation since the middle of 2017. I mean, this for me is like absolutely incredible. Maybe if you're taking a cynical approach, you could say the sort of private valuation is a bit irrelevant until to Simon's point on the last one, they IPO. But I mean, this is still incredible, right? I think so. I, th- I think we're seeing companies IPOing late generally across the spectrum, across all of tech. And, and the IPO isn't what it used to be. Going Doing the public offering when there's so much kind of private capital out there makes, makes a lot less sense. What is interesting is they're not talking about unit economics. May I wouldn't expect them to as a non-public company but it feels very much like they're in growth mode and you know like they're talking about two million customers and then the nine hundred thousand of those are monthly active which is a proportion isn't bad but that's a lot of drop-off too and what's the unit economics on the nine hundred thousand? what's interesting so i think they define active as making a single transaction right so obviously from a 2 million base you're looking at 900,000 i think monthly active right 250,000 daily active compared to i think monzo of 200,000 daily active from a base of 600,000 but of course Revolut started life as a, a currency card, right? So something you would affect. Yeah, it's a different market, and Revolut's pan-European as well. Um, so it's going after a bigger market base. But of those six hundred thirty thousand current account customers that Monzo has, five hundred thousand are monthly active, versus the two million customers in total and nine hundred thousand active. So proportionally, there appears to be either a bigger drop off there or. Simply, people just don't travel every month, and actually, this is a very focused travel card. So can they diversify? You know, will they become more than the travel card? Because they're launching a lot of products. I mean, products are coming out My, from Revolut. So actually, picking up on that, I think... I was going to say, I wonder how many of that have got actually any cryptocurrencies because they have the cryptocurrency wallet they can exchange, yeah. like Litecoin, Ether. So it would be quite really interesting point, like, to see like, how many of that. Really, I think the point I was going to make was, for me, Revolut are very much in the sort of Uber mold of like, 
move fast and break things. And I think I was wondering, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about the idea that people don't necessarily buy what you sell or buy what you do. They buy who you are. And I think maybe Revolut lack that sort of cuddly edge a little bit that some of the other that some of the other fintechs have. So I, I wondered, what, you know, what you thought about that in terms of like moving forward. And well, I'm I'm not really sure about about that I think like Revolut have got a good chance I know like a lot of people that are like actually like coming to the UK like my French friends and all of that that are going going like straight to Revolut maybe they've heard about it but they like most of the people that I've talked to are not familiar with actually Monzo or Starling which I found like quite interesting because like in, in the UK this is what we know and like our, like my friend, my friends are European, and they have much more of a presence in Europe. So that is your natural gateway in is through the brand that you already know. And I'm interested in how much of it is that you know people came for the crypto, stayed for the travel card, or came for the crypto and then left. You're like, is there any of that going on with Revolut? Do we think could be? Could be. I use uh, Revolut all the time, but <laughs> via Curve to go and get the uh, the currency swap and then I transfer it across to a, a metro. You're full of these tricks. I love it. So it's <laughs> There's going to be like a spin-off fintech finance show someday that you do, which is like from inside the mind of a fintech nerd, here comes all of the little tricks you can do. To, <laughs> to be fair, I think you could get like everyone around the table to guest on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, I would love those. I think it'd be really interesting to see the balances as well with Revolut, because obviously you have to transfer into the currency before you travel abroad. So how much is the balances that they're capturing affecting their balance sheet? How is that driving them? What does that mean for the business model? Because I think that most of the people that I know, and I'm probably a bit older than a lot of Monzo customers, sadly, but lots of people that I know have Revolut and have never considered Monzo, for example. So I think it depends on, but I would be really interested to dig into as you said the figures because there's one thing to look at you know the drop off and there's another thing to see the long tail how many people exactly you know and what is the average transaction value that they're using it for because obviously we know they're not going to make a tremendous amount through even the extension into a current account it's going to be loans it's going to be deposits that's how they're going to actually really drive the business model forward that and that's the question here is how much of this is vanity metrics how much of this is real and so it's kind of obvious when people talk about an average um, you know, customer deposit value of x but that's why I, I think they are rolling out the other products and and it, the really interesting question that would have been interesting to see is that investor deck that says here's the other products we're going to launch and here's where that drives revenue but actually are they still just in hyper growth mode and they're going to worry about that because like for the first three years the, you know the business plan of any hyper growth startup is kind of fluid anyways if you looked at facebook's if you looked at any of those hyper growth startups it is kind of always that way are they pulling off that trick and will they succeed and will they become the first that goes global veronique one question that i would have is um what is their customer acquisition cost customer acquisition cost uh, mostly because there is so much money being poured in from vcs into the fintech industry which is creating more competition and that's great for the users and with more services available but it also means that it's even more difficult and even more costly to acquire customers and therefore where are the returns going to be yeah. No, I, I think it's a really good point. And I think actually, you know, we, we come back to this a little bit all the time is this idea of sort of entry points. And we've seen very different entry points from the, the, the different fintechs or sort of, you know, what Tom Blomfield has called on the podcast before sort of attack vectors. So Monzo came to market with a whole heap of noise with their sort of hot Carl card and sort of like achieved real virality and sort of almost pushed their cost of customer acquisition to zero because everyone was like, what's that really cool card? I want it, but we've seen it. Viral growth. Yeah, we've seen different attack vectors from the different... But your first sort of 50 or so thousand customers, they tend to be a lot easier. It's all your early adopters. And then your next sort of 50,000 on top of that are your, your sort of referrals. And it seems in some ways that Revolut is diversifying so much that they're almost going for the low-hanging fruit. I always get the first business customers, get the first crypto people, just get the first travelers, the first... They seem to aim for those sort of low-hanging fruit, and that might be what's driving their growth. So I have no idea how sustainable that is for them in, in terms of getting on board new customers. But yeah, and I think even, you know, coming in straight away in the sort of currency space, the fees around currency meant it was already low hanging fruit kind of straight from the off. I do um, love Nikolai, though, his quotes. He's a, yeah. Punchy Nikolai. He's a, he's a journalist dream, isn't he? Yeah. Great. So I think, you know, with that, you know, with that, I think it moves us on quite nicely to uh, our next story, which is about TransferWise and the launch of their uh, multi-currency bank accounts. So um, the borderless multi-currency 
bank account and debit card, which enables customers to easily manage their money between countries. So anyone living in the UK and EU can get a free account with instant local bank details for the UK, US, Australia and Europe as if they lived there. Veronique, what are your thoughts on this one? I find it really exciting, actually, as a EU resident uh, to know that there is an account that can... Uh, give me bank details in so many different countries. One of my concerns would be what would be the tax implications if suddenly I have bank details in other jurisdictions. And uh, I checked their FAQs page for that account exactly for that purpose. And they are actually still evaluating the impact of what um, what Which it is, means is for people to hold these accounts. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of transaction reporting, they are not yet reporting to HMRC or other tax authorities. So that's one page to check for updates. I so by think. launching a multi-country bank account, they're going to launch one or they have launched one or it's on a pilot phase it's been on it's been on pilot for quite a while no they, i saw a guy today with a, one of the cards so they don't know how they're going to report tax but the product's like they, they launched it now. as private in yeah. january and so this one this announcement is them uh, launching it more widely i mean they have they are going for the same market as um revolut and as denizen as well the expat market and that denizen product is really interesting i thought when I looked at it. Was that the one that was by BBVA? Yes, exactly. And I think this, yeah, this sort of mass affluent market that may have residences in multiple countries or may have family abroad or this kind of like, if you've ever had to move country and set up an account, pain in the backside. But then even if you have accounts in both places, just moving between it, tax is a nightmare. Just moving the money is a nightmare. Yeah, uh, it can see the problem it solves. And I love this thing that customers can actually hold and convert funds in over 40 currencies, meaning they can send and save money like a local, as well as getting paid around the world. This like seems like a freelancer's dream, because if you're a freelancer, you're going to have to accept incoming currency from around the world, and you're getting gouged on fees by a lot of the payments providers. This potentially makes that a lot, lot, lot easier. I think they're doing pretty well as well, because I've I actually ordered a card yesterday and it's still verifying my account. But then, yeah, I think their KYC, they're going into quite big detail there. Yeah. Also, the card looks amazing. Bright green. So. The card looks great. I think it reminds me of another one. It reminds yeah. me of another one. Yeah, that was a great story. Yeah, for the listeners who can't remember or didn't see this storm on Twitter, Penta, who are a small business bank in, uh, I think, Berlin, had exactly the same color of card and launched it about four weeks earlier and then very cheekily sort of said, hey, where did you guys get your card? We recognize this, which is terrific. So yeah, bright green card and it's um, portrait rather than landscape, right? Which is the very on vogue. Very on vogue. But, and I I quite like that portrait card thing. But what's interesting, same question here, What's the unit economics? Because transfer-wise are a layer above the banking system. It's to the best of my knowledge, and I may be wrong here, I don't think they have a banking license. Therefore, they're relying on bank partners for this. This is an abstraction. They're going to have to get scale before the unit economics stack up because you know the banks will be making money off them. I, I mean, 100%. And, you know, until they until they sort of, I suppose, unshackle themselves from that, they'll never be truly competitive for customers, right? Well, but again, can they get enough customers to get scale? I mean, you've got to think about the amount of people that fall into this bracket of needing to be multi-country across at least Europe. There's, you know, there's there's probably a whole bunch. I've checked. It's 50 to 55 million expats. So it's quite a big market. It's a decent, and that's underserved and overcharged. And when you have an underserved and overcharged market, that's a great place to play. And I think it's the place that the traditional banks just wouldn't think of playing. Like, well, that's not a loan. That's not a savings product. You know, they, they think in terms of the commodity product and how do I sell more loans? How do I sell more current accounts? And it's like, no, this is a different thing. This is for a different... You start at the customer and work back. Absolutely. It's the idea. Love the simplicity for the customer, but that must be so complex to be running internally. Like, how are they actually operating that how are they managing all those fx rates like what does that actually mean for their business because obviously they're already quite sizable and i've kind of been told on the grapevine that they have kind of quite an overly complex way of running the business this kind of means this just concerns me like how are they actually operating this what is the model yeah i agree with you i mean at the end of the day they are an fx business so they will run some sort of exposure to different currencies and on top of it they are giving better deals than banks but it's still 
not too clear how good a rate it is compared to elsewhere and there's still a matter of shopping around and comparing the rates so i agree with you on and, that. and if they're getting a better deal than banks they're doing so in a marketplace right it banks charging retail is a different thing to interbank rates so the rates they're buying are probably going to be buying from banks so that's not the rate a bank can get so they're selling it for cheaper and buying it for more and somewhere in the middle, they've got a tiny bit of margin to play with. So their operations have to be razor thin. Now, they're a startup and they're running lean. So maybe their operations are razor thin and maybe they can do that. And having enough bank partnerships and having a sophisticated treasury team, maybe they can get there. But it is hard to see how they've done that with as many bank partnerships as they need to pull this off. Um, but but at the same time, maybe that's what makes this work. And I, I can't see behind the scenes and, and I don't know what's going on. Well, I would tie that back to the amount of funding that is in that industry and whether they are actually having those those margins or whether they are burning through a lot of their investments in order to gain that market share. As somebody once said to me, the, a lot of these companies look like VC-funded arbitrage of the FX market. So while, you know, obviously this is an awesome product, obviously with its own complexities, I don't think anyone can deny the fact that they have won probably the award for the most creative release notes. Really? For this update. Okay, so they've written it as sort of a catchy jingle, but basically a poem. This is going to divide opinion on the whole. Shall I read probably the first poem ever on Fintech Insider? Uh, in your musical Irish accent, please do. Okay, this is terrific, right? Version 4.0.0 on the iTunes. We're releasing TransferWise version 4 with big and small fixes we're sure you'll adore. From a place to manage your notification preferences to a record of last month's payment references, we've designed a lovely new intro screen and there's info on where your money's been. But one thing that stands above them all, from London to Tallinn, we've heard your call. We've got an announcement, and it sure ain't small. Our debit card's here to rule them all. This piece of plastic is your one-way ticket to telling the banks just where to stick it. You can wave goodbye to hidden fees and spend worldwide with stress-free ease. So order your bright green card today. In a few short weeks, it'll be on its way. It should arrive sometime in May, and you'll have it for your summer holiday. Wow. Wow. Can we get can we get just like a show of hands in the room? Who's pro and who's con on that? I think that's the I like answer. it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're all pro. Go transfer wise. Not feeling it? Yeah, I kind of like it, but I just feel like it's very detached compared to lots of what they do. They used to be very like that as a company. Yeah. Like they used to be, you know, bankers in bars and all of this. But I feel like they've kind of moved to be quite serious and then they've just gone rogue on this kind of terms and conditions. <laughs> I think they're super excited about it and they just went, All right, well let's write a poem. Poem and a green card. Oh, I think they've got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there were a lot of kind of you know, it went it was a poem and and all of a sudden it was like everything just holiday may they just yeah. they just threw everything at yeah, that the creativity at that went rhyme. towards the end didn't yeah. it? Let's, let's just go for I, the i mean i tried my best i'm i'm, I'm sorry transfer well, the real winner here is us for ross reading that out thank you can someone please take your audio ross and put that to music and get, get that out there michael michael is in the room <laughs> all right moving us on and completing our uk fintech lineup so this is about styling integrating wealthify into their their marketplace, their ever-expanding marketplace. So Wealthify is the online investment service backed by Aviva, and users of Starling's third-party marketplace will now receive access to Wealthify's low-fee ISA, general investment plans which contain a range of investments including shares, bonds, property, and commodities. I think what I really like about this one is that this is the first two-way integration. So now not only is Wealthify sharing information with Starling, Starling will also share information with Wealthify and allow you to sign up directly from within the Starling app. Ali, what do you think about, about this one? First of all, I've got to give a shout out to uh, Yash Sharani for submitting this. You're right, Yash, do some work. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, the one thing that I thought was, the thing I like about Wealthify is you don't have to be a high net worth individual. It can be anyone. You don't even have to, you can have a lot of debt and still put some stuff with Wealthify and that sort of level of financial inclusion is very strong. And it fits in culturally so perfectly with Starling. Yeah. So from my perspective, it's, it's a match made in heaven. It's, it's one, quite it, purple, isn't it? Yeah, it's all... Oh, I should point out, oh, I'm going to do this for the photograph. I am, I am wearing my Starling Bank socks. They're terrific. 
Next level swag. That's a level wow. of swag we don't have. A bit of marketing here. Big, big fan of my Starling Bank Just socks. to point out to anybody that's not in the room and listening on the podcast, Ali did actually stand up, put his foot on the chair, lift up his pant leg and show everybody his Yeah, there's song. a great smell drifting my way. I like that investments can start at a pound, right, to that financial inclusion part, but also the user experience. It used to be that the robo-advisor was uh, essentially answer some questions and we'll put you in a, a risk category between one and ten and we'll select a portfolio for you. Like, it, that wasn't engaging. That wasn't really bringing me into wanting to be a part of that and and that was a thing for them wasn't it It they had to assign you to a risk portfolio that wasn't a customer friendly thing that that was just like you've it was portfolio theory from the 1950s whereas actually i do think that whilst portfolio theory in aggregate still makes a great deal of sense how you engage a customer with that and how you get them thinking about their financial life the people that tend to have the wealth tend to be in their late 50s early 60s or retired the people that aren't yet that age are much younger and actually some of the people that are much younger will have that wealth in 20 30 years so who's acquiring those customers is it the existing wealth banks or is it platforms like this the interesting thing about the wealth business is it takes 20 years to notice that the market has changed because they tend to measure it in terms of assets under management rather than number of customers and potential future share of wallet so this is this is one of those slow burn interesting signals of something that should become more normal um, and i hope we see more like it i think it's interesting i mean wealth tech segment 19.7 percent of uk so obviously it's good that they've made the move to offer this to their customers but the concern that i have is wealthify now is number two to wealth simple what is the real edge that they're bringing for the customer so how much energy are starling putting behind adding another similar platform to uh, similar you know wealth platform when actually we know that the wealth platforms are really struggling to gain customers so how much energy are they putting behind that is it what their customers really really want do they even understand how to use it do they engage with it i would just i think it's kind of smells a little bit of kind of trying to do a lot of things maybe spreading yourself a bit thinly agreed i think so there is there is obviously something in that context around adding similar providers but at the same time it does make the marketplace at least in theory slightly more competitive yeah but like it's a marketplace with six things in it and like there's definitely a prize to be given out for having done this and having made it work but is the vision we all hoped for here are some other things that you can sign up for directly from within your app that you could have signed up for elsewhere if you really wanted it or is it that actually this is this integrated back and forth experience and maybe maybe we get to that point and the first thing is just building the partnerships is hard enough lord knows i've tried to build partnerships between fintech organizations and big (laughs) banks before not easy right but that aside, are we thinking, what is this the end state or is this just the beginning? Because there, there could be so much more here. I said, tip of the iceberg, I think. I mean, for me, I think, you know, Ali, I think to your point, we're still very much like marketplace model V1, right? V0.1. Let's hope. We're definitely not. TransferWise is 4.0.0. But I hope when we get there, we'll get a catchy jingle or a poem. Yeah, where's the Starling poem? Guys, come on. We had Starling socks. We've had a TransferWise jingle and poem. But this is a good podcast. Yeah, so I think actually, Simon, just picking up on your point before as well, I think so, obviously. And, you know, this has been actually a sort of recurring theme throughout the stories we've touched on with the sort of UK fintechs around sort of financial inclusion and actually the sort of awesome work that they're doing in that space. I think what's possibly lacking from the Wealthifies and the Wealthsimples at the moment is that um, real focus on financial literacy, right? And the sort of like the ed piece around that. Amelie, how how important is that, do you think, in in this context, like educating customers about how to get more from their money and and sort of doing that proactively? I think it's very important. Education is important in um, anything that is like financial. You've got to include people. And if you want them to actually use your services, they've got to understand why it is and they've got to understand like the benefits that they're going to get from it. And I think there is a lot of things that's got to be, like, done, like, that. I think, like, Starling are actually, like, doing really well, explaining to their customers how to do things, like, with, like, a lot of blogs that they've got. So I think, I think it's very important, like, the education part. And there's so much you can do there, isn't there? Like, you can gamify it, um, you know, you can make it really, really interactive so that, you know, it doesn't, it's no longer a sort of chore for customers to, like, learn about managing their finances but it actually becomes quite interactive and engaging easy yeah and there's a clarity of message opportunity here that i think is missing on marketplace and uh really understanding your own financial 
position in life and and that generally is something that financial services brands have done reasonably poorly but i do think i mean it's improving i mean the the guys at nutmeg do lots of youtube videos there's the beginnings of it but that real clear message and it's not an easy thing to do to reach out to a new generation of people and explain why things are important and and then just kind of very clearly target that market and have an experience at sentiment you know to uh quote uh, ben robinson from temenos he's always going on about banks need to stop being castles and be forests instead and be ecosystems do you not think that you go on facebook you've got so many different apps and plugins there it's the same sort of thing with the marketplace and facebook it took them a while before that became that became the norm and this is obviously something more but if you look at what drives detailed. facebook's ad and, and their revenue 98 percent of it is ad revenue it's nothing to do with the apps they are a platform that have a load of users that have a load of data that send each other messages so and it has like uh, enough information to retarget you in a big data set like the the ecosystem plays that are out there it's typically been winner take all platforms the end-to-end journeys that kind of make sense so the the old saying i mean you know people have been troping this one out for a little while about uber like i don't think ah, i'm going to use google maps on my phone's gps and then i'm going to um, make a payment without thinking about it because those two bits of data were plugged into uber's bits of data to a billing engine like this is still missing that end-to-end journey right it, like yes i can go into my app and i can actively decide to do a thing but what's my end-to-end journey and, and i don't know that there are really clear answers to that question Unless, because one of the things I like about starting, I get a message saying, hey, you've earned this much interest. If that whenever I'm not in the overdraft, that money was then automatically put through Wealthify and then, and then brought back. I mean, that could yeah, be great. That's the sort absolutely. of thing. That's the sort of thing we're thinking about. And, and then educating people about that's the thing that's happening. And what the do financial, you do? That sort of financial literature in that ed piece goes way beyond YouTube videos. It's like nudge theory. It's all these sorts of things. And actually going to people proactively and saying, you know what, like we can help you here. Do you want to action this? Do it within one click from the notification window. It's done. One point, I mean, I, I haven't checked the Wealthify app into the Starling marketplace, but it's whether it's clear what kind of revenue share or fee whoever is getting if I subscribe to it. So what I've liked in the past in the Monzo marketplace is that it was quite clear how much money Monzo was getting if I was buying a service through their marketplace. And I don't know if you guys have already checked it out in the Starling marketplace, this one, uh, whether it's clear uh, what revenue share they're getting. It's a really important point, isn't it? And I think that's what set fintechs apart, particularly from the uh, the sort of established incumbents, is that level of transparency, right? Great. Well, if any of our listeners would like to see more of all of these top UK fintechs that we've touched on on the show, you can see a full end-to-end journeys from behind the secure login in our competitor insights platform, 11FS Pulse. Do check out 11fspulse.com for more info or email hello at 11fs.com. I gave everybody around the table a demo before we started. I think everyone will agree it's absolutely awesome. Yeah, everyone loves a new UI. Like, and it's so much more than that. There's new features and everything. New UI, new features. Everyone I show it to just basically says it's the Netflix of fintech. Who wouldn't want that? As right? Simon said, I was gawping in anticipation and I was delighted by what I saw. There we go. That's a ringing endorsement. That That is going to go on the bottom of every advertisement we do from here on in. So it should. I love, I just want to get the word gawping in a testimonial, really. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that, Carrie. Great. Okay, so look, with all of that good news, I'm afraid we do also have to address the bad. So look, I'm going to bring the, uh, the mood down a little bit and this is to do with TSB's uh, migration fail over the weekend. So um, after six days of being locked out of their internet accounts um, off the back of the migration going wrong, only half of TSB customers can now access them. The bank has admitted that its internet bank is operating at only 50% capacity, although its mobile app is now at 90% capacity. Part of the bank's upgrade to its modern core banking system, kind of unshackling itself, I guess, from the uh, system from Lloyd's, its previous owner. And, and that's the key here, isn't it? Lloyd's and TSB used to be kind of owned by the same group. Post-financial crisis, uh, Lloyd's Banking Group looks at what it can divest. Banco Sabadell, a Spanish bank, comes and acquires TSB. TSB has a fairly well-known brand in the UK high street. They have The idea is uh, it's bringing competition back into UK banking, which, as we know, is a very concentrated banking market, unlike the US, where it's, it's, it's really quite diverse. And so you know, it was seen as a different strategy from the RBS strategy, where they tried to do uh, Williams and Glynn, and then that very publicly didn't do so well. But now they're looking at alternative strategies. This one, they, they went for something that, that made a lot of sense on the face of it. It's like they paid Lloyd's Banking Group to stay on their system 
systems for a period of time so that they had a longer time to figure out the transition. And to be fair to them, it looks like everything inside the branch and all of the stuff on the telephone is working. What's really interesting here is that because the internet bank is operating at 50% capacity, tells you how important online banking is. The bank itself behind the scenes is, is to all intents and purposes working. Like the bank works, it's the internet bit, the web page essentially is not working and some of the features on it, which really tells you about where we are in 2018, where to so many people, that is the bank. Exactly. And also, I think another um, another key point to um, pick up on there is that, you know, obviously, this isn't the first time a migration's gone wrong. This may be the first really big migration that's gone wrong in the world of like social media and how social media drives mainstream media. I think what's been nice is to see the chief executive Paul Pester being quite active publicly, you know, apologizing. It sounded quite sincere. And I think what's going to ultimately set TSB out competitively moving forward is that all right, the migration's gone wrong, but they do have a modern core banking system and a high street presence. Mm-hmm. It's quite rare, isn't it? I've got to give a bit of shout out to uh, Paul Pester because about, about four years ago, their ATM network went down and he was, unbeknownst to their PR team, he was on Twitter saying, we're working on it, we're working on it on Twitter. And this time he's held, he's had some restraint or he's had uh, his PR team on top of him to stop him uh, tweeting out. But as you said, it's been quite sincere and I, I, I feel sorry for them because they've tried to do something and the bank's working for all intents and purposes so the core system clearly has been successful it's just part of the front end i I think this talks to like that big bang migration is really hard this is why a lot of banks are stuck on legacy kit because they're terrified of this this is the nightmare for a lot of organizations and the bravery to be out there dealing with customers face to face the bravery of the people working in the branches dealing with customers day in day out this is this is the nightmare situation you don't want to be here and they've gone for the bravery of doing it but also again i I mentioned alliance and leicester and santander uh, earlier in the podcast like this, this has happened before. Uh, a foreign bank has come in, rebranded and put its systems in and things have been down for weeks in, in that case. That was normal, but this is a different time. I think it's also interesting that uh, that big bang kind of switchover is an approach where it's hard to phase. Like if you're going to move all your customers in one go, in one weekend, the chances of something going wrong is really, really high. To have gotten as far as they did, I think, is commendable. Uh, but there's, there's got to be another way. Yeah, I mean, big bang migrations are just not a good idea, right? I don't think, I mean, it's not something I'd want to do if I was, if somebody held a gun to my head and said, figure out how you're going to do it. over the next three years, you're going to get customers from this system to that system. I'd be thinking, how do I do it in drips and drips and drips? And, you know, and what new propositions can I launch and how can I test it? And how can I get uh, a thousand customers on then 10,000, then a hundred thousand and then what segments and so on? I would chop this, I'd, you know, I'd chop up the elephant in this one, slice it up. It is hard not to feel sorry for them. No, but good on them for wanting new tech. And there could be a lot of advantages to having a modern core banking system. A lot of the things that we on this podcast get really excited by are the things that some people see as gimmicks, but I see as really important to uh, a modern kind of banking experience, which is being real time having the intelligence to know have additional context about a transaction yes you made a transaction in another country but you've also got your mobile phone next to you and this is what the atm fee is so let's send you a message so that you know that you're there rather than just turning your cards off and saying oh we think you're in another country that's probably fraud like that sort of stuff that you and can that's add. despite the fact that i sent a travel notification a couple of days before i went right so obviously, I mean, it's it's frustrating from a uh, from a customer perspective, but I think the the main thing here is that customers are being reassured that they've been promised they're not going to be left out of pocket, and that you know really that TSB are working hard to get this resolved, which it certainly seems like they are. Great. So um, time for a quick break and hear from our sponsors. We will be back very shortly. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. 
Welcome back to Fintech Insiders. As a reminder, the show is brought to you by 11FS. We build fully digital products and services for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com, connect on Twitter at 11FS team, or drop us an email at hello at 11FS.com. You got through that. It felt like before you started the read, you were really struggling. We should turn these into limericks. Laura, can we turn these into like transfer-wise? Can I try and read that in transfer-wise style? Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS. We build digital products and services. Come find us on Twitter and send us a picture or send us an email. Hello at 11FS.com. All right, so our next story is from TechCrunch and is to do with Amazon's new blockchain service competing with similar products from Oracle and IBM. So Amazon Web Services announced blockchain templates late last week, a blockchain as a service offering that competes with similar products from Oracle and IBM. Veronique, what are, what are your thoughts on this one? I'm thinking that when they already have won a third of the market for shared cloud infrastructure services, then they're continuing their you know, conquering the tech market and going for uh, blockchain as a service and is really smart. And they've uh, gone to market pretty quickly and they're in competition with, you know, those big tech players like Oracle, IBM, Huawei, and they're going head to head with them. So it's uh, pretty uh, commendable of them. I actually asked the opinion of a friend who is a blockchain developer and thinking, you know, what do you think of this? Is this a gimmick? Or you're so proactive. Right? And uh, he says that it actually for him, it looks like a game changer if it is as slick and reliable as AWS other services, especially for, for startup, we can just can't afford to build their own blockchain and can just log in and have a pay as you go account. Yeah, and that's the point, right? So like, there's a lot happening here in really like a, a very short space of time. So like six months after Oracle's cloud service and Hyperledger, one year after IBM's Hyperledger based blockchain as a service offering. So Simon, like this is a thing, right? Looks like it's a thing. Um, but also Microsoft have had one for a while. This blockchain as a service thing is like spinning up a node of most of these blockchain type architectures is non-trivial creating your own ethereum full nodes uh creating your own hyperledger nodes jesus or even quarter nodes this is enterprise grade software stuff and part of the reason why cloud infrastructure became popular in the first place was because devops was a thing you needed the ability to quickly instantiate an entirely new environment this template approach gives you the ability to have that speed especially when you're testing something right because the the big argument about a blockchain is well Maybe we don't need Amazon anymore. Aren't Amazon just a big centralized service provider? What happens when Amazon goes down? Doesn't de- doesn't decentralization give me further like resilience that I wouldn't have had before? I don't think that's what they're going for here. One, they're saying, look, you can get up and use it quickly. You can, as a developer, you can start using this thing really quite easily without a lot of effort and build something and then scale it and then use it across multiple platforms. And two, I love this idea that because you've got the likes of uh, Baidu and Tencent offering blockchain platforms, Huawei offering blockchain platforms, but Microsoft as well, if you were to truly go multi-cloud and if you were to truly actually de-risk what you were trying to do from a data standpoint, we've seen people get hacked running Amazon Web Services. We've seen people now start to diversify into multiple clouds. You then start to lose some of the benefits of having a cloud-based provider. So the eventual consistency becomes important. So being able to create the consistency that a blockchain gives you, that revolution and reconciliation we often talk about, it is a really powerful thing. Now, whether or not this is just a Me Too offering and Amazon are really behind this, or if it's just a, hey, here's a really quick way to trial it, uh, or hey, we know this is a hype word and we're going to put something out there because everybody else has, or whether or not they're really behind it, I'm not so sure on. I wonder how much the share price of Amazon have gone up since they've just like put this word out, blockchain. Yeah. Like, it's like the, what is it, the, the Long Island iced tea company? I, I don't think the Amazon share price was really struggling, though, was it? Have you seen it in the last year? <laughs> That's not investment advice, by the way. I think it'll be interesting to see what this means. I don't know. It really interested to get your views, Simon, on what does this mean? Because obviously we've seen the ICA market calm slightly after the kind of complete hype and, you know, overinflation of, you know, the white paper with, you know, basically I am going to con you written in it and then lots of people investing. So, but we're still seeing and we're still getting as... um, Cruxy, we're still getting a lot of kind of ICOs come through, which actually there does look like there's a clear role for the token in a tokenized economic model. So how will kind of freeing up blockchain and giving people more potential to build blockchains, how will that kind of change the landscape of the ICO as well? 
Oh, I don't know how it directly changed the landscape of the ICO, but I, I think in terms of macro theme, I think we have gone from get rich quick to get rich slowly. And, and that's probably a good thing. We've gone from let's try and con people out of money into bona fide service offering from a major cloud vendor as being part of the normal story. And I think as a macro trend, when I talk to um, senior regulators and policymakers, it's gone on, it's moved away from Bitcoin bad, blockchain good into, all right, we understand the Bitcoin market. How are we going to make ICOs more safe for consumers? Like the, the conversations moved. We saw the, the rumored Barclays opening an OTC desk for crypto. Uh, Goldman have hired a crypto trader. I think quietly crypto and DLT and blockchain stuff is creeping towards legitimacy and in the eyes of many. And it's moved away from this hype of 2017 into quietly behind the scenes, it's becoming real, but the major product offerings aren't there yet. So I'm looking at 2019 as being a really big year for the space. I just see this as another signal as part of that macro theme. From it, so I know actually, Simon, picking up on, on probably um, something you've said a, a great many times about, you know, I guess crypto has the sort of sublime and the ridiculous, but it's often quite difficult to see the sublime for all of the ridiculous so are we are we sort of moving beyond that now and also from a sort of fs space are we going to actually see providers sort of move beyond the sort of well-trodden use cases of like you know fx and remittance and actually start to explore some innovative use cases yeah we'll get past me too but at the same time once we get past the me too offerings it'll start to feel a bit more boring like the hype will go and it'll be like oh yeah wow now we can clear derivatives with real-time delivery versus payment and half of the world goes what but for the capital markets nerds they go wait what that's really significant for financial markets right so once you start getting there or once we start creating new asset classes that crypto kitty is one of the most uh, mocked things in uh, the last sort of decade uh, that i can see it was just seen as being like this stupid silly little weird thing but actually what it me created was a non-fungible token this idea of digital uniqueness and the digital collectible digital art uh, and actually creating a marketplace around digital art has been really difficult copyright in the digital space has been really difficult creating a financial market around where a payment can be delivered once a digital copyrighted item has been played or interacted with that's a massive benefit for the film industry the music industry uh, and the innovation around financial services has been able to securitize that to me those new financial services offerings are where this gets really exciting i'm less interested in remaking the old and much more interested in building the new and if you look at some of the new this is getting really nerdy the erc 884 and the erc 998 so some of these new pro- what are those um, yeah. um, no idea. I, i'm sure our listeners will know exactly what the erc 998 is so uh, it's an ethereum reference contract so this is the idea that it's a standard right so i'm going to create a standard type of contract but instead of creating a standard contract in legal pros i'm going to create this standard contract in software and it was actually the ELC 20 that created the ICO boom they created this thing in which you could very quickly issue tokens you gave this thing ether you sent ether to a wallet address so it's a bit like sending an email you just send your ether from your wallet to this wallet address and in return you would get those tokens that's what the ELC 20 did right so these ELC 884 um, and uh, I think it was 778 which was for the crypto or 718 was for the crypto kitty all of these new standards that are emerging may not be the eventual answer but they're interesting if you are somebody who's interested in what could we do in terms of real financial services innovation instead of just copying what was there before instead of just trying to make what was there before a little bit faster and cheaper where's the new revenue coming from banking has gone through a decade of kind of dealing with regulation and trying to sort itself out where's growth coming from and i will get off my soapbox now and if that combination of obscure acronyms and numbers really grinded your gears, don't forget Blockchain Insiders on iTunes now. <laughs> um, and also, Simon, picking up on your point about I'm bored of the old, I want to build a new, that's very 11FS and that is very on brand. I like that a lot. Okay, um, I'm going to move us on to our next story, which again really harps back to um, the financial inclusion point that I think has sort of been a recurring theme uh, throughout this show. So the World Bank has released the latest global Findex database, which shows that an additional 515 million people have opened some kind of financial services account between 2014 and 2017. So 69% of adults globally, which is around 3.8 billion people, now have an account up from 62% in 2014 and 51% in 2011. And actually, interestingly, and this probably speaks to the likes of M-Pesa, the success that they've had, 
of the 1.7 billion adults who remain unbanked, around two-thirds own a mobile phone. And also, the gender gap, so 72% of men and 65% of women have some kind of financial account, and that gap is much higher in developing countries. So um, I think, you know, obviously quite a lot of work still to be done. But Veronique, um, sounds like we're making progress. Yes, there is progress being made. And um, I think the Global Findex database is worth mentioning because it is only released every three years because it takes a lot of time to gather this data. And uh, they cover more than 140 economies, which is the most comprehensive survey being made. So that's where the data can actually be trusted a bit more. And in particular, the progress... that technology is um, allowing in terms of financial inclusion is uh, really significant and the digitization of cash. In a lot of emerging economies, uh, the digitization of cash is used to reduce corruption and crime. And um, on a more uh, mundane level, it means that uh, people can pay their bills with their mobile phone rather than having to take a whole day to travel into town uh, just to pay their electricity or um, water bill, which is something that we will take for granted. But that means that given they don't work on the field or don't work on their job for that full day, they they lose 14% of the revenue just to pay a bill. I think this is the thing that people don't realize or, or really, I suppose, apply or think about when it comes to financial inclusion. Because so financial exclusion as a term maybe is like abstract. We all know what it means. But do we really think about it? I mean, you know, what it means is that you can't get an Uber you can't book an Airbnb, you can't pay utility bills, you can't rent a flat. Like that's the data. If you take it down to like the daily lives of consumers, that's where we're at. And that's that's something that like... I think it's way, way deeper than that. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I've just moved house and getting a mortgage was an absolute ball ache. And you're a fintech nerd. Yeah. <laughs> and, there's, and there's people that I know could probably afford a mortgage and can't get it just because of the way that regulation, laws, technology are set up. And that's not included on that figure and then you look at 1.7 billion yeah 1.7 billion without a bank account how many people can then say not get insurance on top of that can not get a mortgage can it's even though they've got the capacity and the means to do all that it's just down to the technology and and society to to ensure it happens i don't think it is just down to technology sorry to be very brutal but i think that the reality is that in areas of sub-saharan africa and things like that we should even question whether they need bank accounts i think to veronique's point isn't the better thing that they have something that works in their lives we shouldn't apply our own view of western financial systems onto and this is the mpesa point like mpesa's brought something like 67 percent of kenyan adults into the formal financial system they don't need a bank account right they just need a way to be able to like withdraw and transfer funds this is the classic bill gates um people need banking but they don't need banks uh, and so the interesting thing about the telcos in, in a lot of emerging markets have become de facto financial services companies and providers but then they've they'd kind of done it in this uh, this ivory tower way where they would split communities and villages and the vi- one village next to the next village might be on different telcos and they couldn't communicate and it's siloed and this is the annoying part right well so there's a really interesting project called the level one project by um the gates foundation uh working and they've launched something called mojo loop and the idea behind mojo loop is uh, a set of standards for telcos to interoperate with each other working in concert with central banks so from a central bank's perspective they always have a macro prudential responsibility in other words they have to know what how much money is in the system how's the economy doing what should we do about the interest rate but they can't tell what's happening with the telco based money uh, at the same time, like getting access to central bank clearing is really efficient and affordable for the likes of uh, the, the telcos. It's great. But then it also potentially starts to legitimize them to the point where you can do remittances directly down to the mobile phone. So you know, a lot of migrant workers send money back home through Western Union. It'd be great if it got all the way to the mobile phone without having to go via Western Union, without via the channel. So there is some really interesting innovation happening on this that tries to move the needle on that 1.7 billion adults. But the problems are very real in terms of digital literacy not just financial literacy often people even the people that have a smartphone barely know how to use the top three or four apps and even then it's like 
the products and the services, the cultural change that you need to be able to use this stuff has to be driven by by something in society. What worked for mobile money was that you had that real need around this is easier than carrying cash, which has a whole bunch of risks associated to it. And you get it from the agents like you already get the mobile money. So you were, you were kind of latching onto an existing behavior. Where can we latch onto those existing behaviors to do more stuff? Yeah, I don't think that's going to come necessarily through smartphones. I think it will come from like what we thought of as, or for me, very basic Nokia, you know, very excitable changing the front cover into something coloured or whatever back in the day. But I think it will I come mean, from like times. very basic. They were great times. Don't great deny times. it. They'll come from kind of, you could even get a Monzo bright orange one for oh, Sub-Saharan a hot, Africa. Oh, Nokia yeah. phone cover. But I think it will come from basic text functionality. It will come from then that underlying insurance products, that giving people the ability to kind of buy grain land. Yeah. You know, I think that there's lots of very basic things which are needed before we start talking about apps and smartphones. Agreed. But, but, you know, also designing, I suppose, solutions that are relevant in the context of the market, right? I think, you know, Google Tez is a really good example where we've seen like something like 300 million smartphone users in India, but most of them are like entry level and mid tier, don't support NFC. So they use um, ultrasonic or like an audio audio QR um, to send and receive payments. And it just uses like a frequency that you can't hear to wake up the phones around you and send a payment. Like, you know, it's this idea of, you're right, Simon, people need banking, they don't necessarily need banks. I think the flip side on that is, you know, again, to bring it back to what we've seen with Impesa in in Kenya and their, their sort of recent interaction with, uh, or their recent uh, partnership with PayPal, what we saw before that was that you needed an equity bank account to be able to use PayPal. Most people couldn't get an equity bank account, so they were excluded from like international e-commerce and, and even national e-commerce, which saw this sort of rise of like third-party brokerages that charged massive fees to allow people to use PayPal to, to sort of access these markets. So, you know, in, in a sense, you do need a bank to a point or else you suffer, right? You don't like necessarily like need a bank. I heard the story of uh, going back to like what you were saying, like sometimes like, yeah, like why, why would you need like a bank or like a banking system? In Africa, there is a lot of people that actually are using now Bitcoin, because like they've all, as you said, like they most most of them have a smartphone, and it's very easy easy now to like just download the wallet. You get your Bitcoin, you transfer the Bitcoin, and them, they're not buying the Bitcoin with a bank account. What they're doing is like they're gonna have some cash, they're gonna earn some kind of money. They go on a website, buy some gift card, and then put it in Bitcoin, and then they can send the transfer like directly to their family who are living somewhere else. I think this is. That is financial inclusion when you are doing that. And the more you have like merchants that accept different methods of payment, like such as Bitcoin and all the other cryptocurrency, the more then you are yeah, included into into the market. But it's very different from like yeah, Africa to Asia Agreed, but the or anywhere. It's the same, isn't it? It's about making sort of viable alternatives available for people so that they're not paying massive fees to access financial services. It's got to be back and forth as well. I was just in Germany last week and I don't want to get rid of cash. I personally quite, I quite like cash, but in Germany, it's cash only. You're not allowed to use a card. And I was like, why not? And the amount of times I had to go to an ATM and they think cash is free. Cash isn't free. Cash is cash costs costs money to, to handle and to do all these things. And you know what, Ali, thank you for that, because it is the most perfect segue onto our next story, which is contactless payments on the tube. So now half of all tube and rail pay as you go journeys across London are made using contactless payment, which is a staggering 25% rise on the total two years ago. So what do we think on this? Have we kind of reached a tipping point finally on contactless payments? Or is the tube just a very, very specific use case? My gran still keeps her card wrapped in silver foil for uh, contactless. That's terrific. And that was that was a real sort of trend at the advent of contactless. Well, you need to figure out what's her name. You need to like play this to her. She's famous now. It's actually it's actually a hark back to about a year and a half ago. Yeah. It is represent. Um, and, and I guess I, I, 
this is uh, kind of uh, some areas have seen that higher usage. I think it's an interesting point. Uh, <laughs> page you go, Joan, is at Shoreditch High Street, Canary Wharf and Clapham Common. <laughs> so basically where young people are and or bankers and startup people. Uh, so it, look, it's obvious who the demographics were adopting this. I do think it's interesting, though, there was a question, uh, if you wind the clock back to sort of 2010-11, is you know, would people ever get off the Oyster card? Would people ever use their contactless card instead? And, and actually, the answer is resoundingly yes. And there's also, uh, I think this is proof of the thesis, that transit is a great way to get people to tra- change behavior. Contactless card adoption, wherever mass transit uses it, then does increase dramatically. And we're seeing other transit authorities around the world, like I think uh, in New York, they're really considering to moving towards uh, sort of an oyster card model in Hong Kong, where they've had it, you know, before the UK for quite some time. Uh, that's a that's a complete norm and, and a user behaviour that's well understood. So we shouldn't bend ourselves over patting ourselves on the back here too much. And, and there's a there's a there's a wider thing there, which is that like this isn't new, right? So like contactless launched on buses in London back in December 2012, and then across tube and rail services in September 2014, right? So I mean, this has been slow to take off. But is that just really down to like a sense of inertia and people, you know, tend to stick with what they know rather than changing straight away? Yeah, I think most people are used to Oyster probably just sticking with that. But I'd be really interested to know what it's what it's like outside of London. I don't know. I feel like a real Londonist saying that. No, no. I'd, I'd love to see the, um, the the breakdown by geography. I think generally across the UK, it is up massively in the last sort of two, three years. But it, this is the thing with the J curve: is it feels like it all comes at the end of the J curve, right? The, by the time adoption really rises, everybody goes, "Oh yeah, of course it's obvious." Like there's this weird thing about like it's never going to come, it's never going to come. Oh, of course it came. Like it was obvious that it was going to. And this is the really weird thing about those adoption cycles. Completely agree with you, though. And one of the things we were discussing earlier about the new banks. I love it when kind of the innovation is picked up and people change behavior based on, as you said, nudge theory, but also based on just make it really easy for people, reduce all the friction. Think of a time when, you know, oh, I could queue up and get my oyster topped up or I could literally just use my card. It just drives, you know, it's like it just flows downhill. And I think it's awesome. I think that's what we need to see more fintech, B2C fintechs doing just a applying themselves to these use cases where there's no friction and just accepting that that's what's going to drive adoption. That goes back to the market again, because in the UK, okay, like there's a lot of people that are using contactless. In the US, like during the payments rates that we did in, in November, like you can't go anywhere. And like, it's not about a commodity. People know how easy it is to just like tap your card and that's it. No, they prefer like to swipe it and sign it. Like and it's, it's, it's like, why? You forget your signature and then you go to the US, you're like, God, come on. We had a guy going from Toronto to Vegas, only allowed to use contactless. So he had his mobile phone, he had his Monzo card, he had his curve ring. Fantastic in Canada. He crossed the border into the US and it was literally Subway and Starbucks. He, he crossed the border into the US and the app deleted itself. Yeah, pretty, pretty much, yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy, but yeah, he had a rough time. All right, and our, um, and finally, or our eye roll story this is this one's a bit weird simon i'm just gonna hand this one to you i feel like this is right up your alley funeral finance does sound like a, a emo band <laughs> just like uh, so over a third of brits think that cryptocurrency refers to funeral finance can we no just let that hang for a second because that is over a third of brits what is the breakdown of that data over a third of brits how many brits have they actually asked? and how did they phrase this question and also this all right so what do they think a crypto fund is to like, answer to answer veronique's question so they surveyed two thousand members of the british public i think simon to probably tee you up for an alley-oop it must have been multiple choice right there's no way that like a third of brits went i reckon it's probably funeral finance yeah no somebody was having a jolly like yeah no, no there's no way a third of people assumed the same thing like they came up with the same weird wacky answer they probably say like do you have you heard of dead coin <laughs> yeah uh, so apparently yeah they were asked 20 questions relating to computers and technology um that apparently uh th- this is fantastic the results revealed that a quarter of respondents thought that html is text speak for hi there my love <laughs> this is phil this is phil dunphy all over again when he's saying about that i know i'm down with the kids wtf why the face you are phil dunphy that makes so much sense i get you now and we wonder why we've got a dev problem in the uk like and okay so my my favorite is in answer to what is the blockchain 
Apparently, forty-one percent. Bear in mind, this is the this is the same population that voted for Brexit. So I'm not terribly surprised. Said that it was another name for an old-fashioned toilet pull flush. I mean, you can get the logic, but like, I love the fact that somebody wrote the survey to go troll the British to see what they could get away with. And then, where did they go do this survey? Because apparently, it's two thousand members of the British public standing right outside the post office and near and retirement community. Like, the, it was done by the Daily Mirror. So let's take this not with a pinch of salt, but a whole bucket of salt. But I think what they're trying to say with this is, do people really get technology and, and how pervasive is technology in the long tail? We do live in a context bubble where we all think we understand this technology and that the rest of the market should. It's a nice, funny way of getting us out of our observer bias is the only hope here. Is it, though? Because I just think, like, if I saw an old-fashioned toilet pull flush, I know it's not, but, like, the anarchist in me is just going to go, yeah, obviously. Yeah, true. Is this, like, this is like the, the Jedi thing. religion thing. <laughs> yeah, the census, right? So there was a thing, uh, for those who don't remember, in the UK census where uh, there was a movement to try and get Jedi formally recognised as a religion because apparently there was a threshold where enough people say something is their religion. More Jedis than Sikhs. Yeah. So British being trolls. Also, the other one was we got Rage Against the Machine to the Christmas number one just to troll the Christmas boaty, number boaty one. Boaty McBoatface. Yeah. yeah. But, so the British do have a, a, a history of being trolled. sense of humour. Yeah, so so this is really the Daily Mirror got trolled. Is that, that's what we can take away from this one? And uh, crypto is more mainstream, but not as mainstream as funerals, because death gets you all. Yeah, or funeral <laughs> finance. That's a worthy last word. So on that note, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to all of our guests, guys. Where can people find out more about you, Carrie? Cruxy and Company. So cruxy.co.uk, LinkedIn, Carrie Osman, and Twitter at Carrie Loves. Awesome, Ali. We'll do two little plugs. One is uh, we've got a super feature from 11FS in our latest issue of Fintech Finance magazine that is out and about now. Um, the other plug, which I think probably ties in with your advert, we're uh, going to be at Money 2020 as well doing another payments race, this time from Istanbul all the way to Amsterdam. So we'll be uh, hopefully seeing you, uh, you guys there. Yeah, I'm Ali Patterson on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you for that, Ali. Amelie. So you can find uh, Adastra Marketing at adastra-marketing.com and Miss Amelie uh, Aras on Twitter. And you can find me on the payments race from Istanbul to Amsterdam in June. Love that double plug. Veronique. I'm Veronique at 11fs.com or Magic Veronique on Twitter. Veronique, can I ask you a question? Are you, uh, are you feeling tough? Uh, yes, so I th- believe this is in relation to... Ali, do you want, why don't you do it, mate? Plugging away at the moment. Plug uh, away. We're uh, 11FS and uh, us guys from Phoenix Finance. We've got, we got uh, Val from uh, Oak North and Sophie from Innovate Finance, Innovate Finance and pretty much Metro Bank's whole IT team. We're uh, all doing Tough Mudder on 5th of May. So uh, I think you've got you've got a couple of links for the charities that you're doing it for. Uh, how's your tra- training going well? Laura, training going well? <laughs> We're raising money for kidney research. For those listeners interested in supporting kidney research and the guys on their Tough Mudder, we will include a link to the fundraising page in the description on YouTube. Simon, where can we find out more about you? Uh, S.Y. Taylor on Twitter, and you'll uh, not hear me on Blockchain Insider because the wonderful Sarah Kachansky has taken over that and done far better with it than I could ever do. So it's now a great show to listen to because I'm not on it. (laughs) Wow, tune in and available on iTunes now, Blockchain Insider. And as for me, you can find me at rossger at 11fs.com or rossgallagher07 on Twitter. As always, if you like what you've heard this week and how could you not, come and talk to us at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or podcast at 11fs.com if you want to send us an email. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and please do leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.